Um, So we're in Matthew 16, and we're going to begin today in verse 13. And this is what we read. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That's just his Hebrew name, Simon, son of John, is what that means. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So if you've been at Northridge Life Church since its beginning in February, <clears throat> we spent the last 12 months talking about different aspects of doctrine, about what this church teaches and about how church life kind of works to try to give us all kind of a better foundational understanding of those things. We spent five weeks talking about what it truly means to be saved in our series called Proof. We did ten weeks explaining what our church teaches doctrinally. Um, We did a series on the mission of the church, in other words, what the church should be doing. We did a, a series on the truer and deeper meaning of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We did a a series on how Christians should glorify God in their bodies. We have discussed church government and church discipline. We've discussed worship. And last week, Paul discussed fellowship. And in the next three weeks, what we're going to do is we're hopefully going to take all these things and they're going to be summarized and they're going to be distilled into a better understanding of what it means to share life with the body of Christ, in deep, deep covenant uh, uh, with the church, connected to the church through membership, or as I actually prefer to call it, uh, uh, kind of a covenant partnership. And the reason I prefer that more is because when you think of membership, you think of the old credit card commercial, membership has its advantages, where if I'm a member of what your thing is, then your job is to serve me. But that's not what a membership in the body means it means to to supply everything the body needs together amen and so and so what we're calling our church to is partnership it's a covenant based partnership and so this week we're going to begin to make our closing arguments about what the church is meant to be and what this covenant partnership is all about and we're going to hopefully discover that from the mind of God as he has expressed it in the scriptures. So next week we're going to talk specifically about why covenant matter uh, partnership in the church matters and why all believers are called to that sort of, of partnership with no exceptions. And then the following week we're going to tell you exactly how to participate in just such a covenant. And this is not 
for us, for the elders of our church. This is not some novel trend. Hey, we heard that some other churches are doing this, so let's do it. No, this, this is the way that churches have tried to live out the kingdom since the days of the apostles. And it's also a culmination for us, at least, of a four-year journey that's allowing us as a church to be on a more uh, kind of biblical footing. So let's get started with a definition. Jonathan Lehman um, describes or defines a local church this way. He says, a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Now, gospel ordinances, of course, are baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate every week. To really understand what the church is, we we have to understand, (coughs) pardon me, we have to understand that it has both an institutional and an organic uh, dimension to it. Now, when I say institutional, you might think, well, what does that mean uh, that the church has an institutional element to it. What I'm referring to by institutional, I'm referring to the structure and the boundaries that make a church recognizable. So that when when other Christians or even the world looks at it, they say, oh, that's a church. It has a structure. And it has very little to do with the physical facilities, the building. Uh, so it's, it's the structure, the boundaries that make the church recognizable. Now, when I say organic, what I'm referring to is all the intangible things that make a church a church, how they worship, how, what they believe, those sort of things, the, the, the intangible things that make a church a church. And so what I want to do now is I want to provide you with a couple of analogies to help you to understand, hopefully, what I'm saying. So when we think of other things that are both organic and institutional, the first thing that comes to my mind, at least, is marriage. Marriage is both institutional and organic. The organic element, everybody knows about the organic element of marriage. That includes things like companionship. I married Ginger. She married me because we wanted to be with each other. There was an emotional element of that. And there's some admiration that goes along with that. I, I admire my wife. Hopefully she admires me. That's what I'm shooting for, at least. There's some sexual intimacy that goes with that. There's shared confidences. There's tender encouragements that happen only between me and my wife. That's the organic element. That stuff that makes your heart go flutter is the organic element of your marriage. However, the institution of marriage is based on some very solid, concrete things. My vow, the fact that I wear this ring, the fact that there was a ceremony before a bunch of witnesses where they said, now these two people are married that took back way long time ago in an ancient time called 1993. And this, this, this ceremony based on the law of God defining marriage limits, get this, it limits the sharing of the organic experience of my marriage with only one woman. I can only share the organic experiences with one woman because of the institution of marriage. Does everybody understand that? If there were no institution to my marriage, then I could just share those organic experiences with any woman. You see the problem with that? And so what we have is we have a culture that has said, I love the organic experience of marriage. I'm not real crazy about the institution. 
But what God is trying to tell us is that the institution, the boundary and the concrete lines of the institution are there to protect, not to limit the organic. You see what I'm saying? They're to enhance and make better the organic. And so that's the same thing with the church. If the institutional boundary didn't exist in my marriage, guess what? My marriage covenant would not exist because the covenant's based on the institution, not on the organic. Because if it were just based on the organic, I could have told her back in 1992, I could have said, hey, baby, I love you. You want to shack up and just kind of hang out and see what, see where this thing goes? No. I stood before a, 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 a group of witnesses and I said, uh, for better or worse, in sickness and in health, for richer and poorer, sorry about that poorer thing, but I said, for richer or poorer, till death do we part. I put an institutional element on the organic feeling that I had for her. Got it? Everybody with me so far? And so the organic element of the church, think of it this way. It's the face. It's the skin. It's the hair that makes the body of Christ beautiful. That's the organic part. But the institutional element is the bones that give the body shape and structure so it's not just a flabby, gooey mess. Got it? I mean, you might think, you, you might think, a young man might think, man, that, that lady is beautiful. That young lady is beautiful. But if you removed her bones, all the stuff that you think was so beautiful would take on a whole other assessment. Right? The organic element is, it's like, the organic element is like wine. You know, wine is, it represents Flavor. It, it, it represents exhilaration. But if you if you took away the cup, if you took away the 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 uh, the glass, the wine glass, then the institutional element being the glass, then it would just spill through your fingers and it would be useless. And a lot of times people say, "Well, I love the organic thing about being connected with kind of a Jesus-ish." kind of existence, but I don't want the institution. And guess what? It's spilling through their fingers and it's just being wasted. If the church were not an institution, it couldn't be defined. No one would know what was and what was not the church. But if the church is only an institution and there's no, nothing organic, then it's lifeless, it's cold, it's dead, it's ineffective. So churches... The problem with this is that churches, and you all have known on both sides, churches can lean toward shapeless indistinctiveness, just everything's all organic, or they can lean toward dead institution. But our goal here, I want to assure you that our goal here at Northridge Life Church, although we might find ourselves adjusting here and there to make sure that we're as close to the center as possible, our goal is to be both biblically institutional and spiritually organic. At the same time, all the time. Matthew 16 is Jesus' defining statement on both aspects of the church, the, inorga- the organic and the, and the institutional. <clears throat> Matthew says that this exchange happens there in verse, uh, verse 13. He says that this exchange happens in Caesarea Philippi. And when he says that, most of you probably read right past that, but when he says that, 
He isn't just giving us geographical location. Oh, I need to make sure my readers know where Jesus said this. There's a point to that. There's a point why he tells us that it took place in Caesarea Philippi. He's telling us about the very nature of the place where they're standing when Jesus has this exchange with his disciples. You see, in the Old Testament, this part in northern Israel was, was known for its worship of the Baals. And this, this particular Baal that they worshipped was Baal Gad. And, and Baal Gad was, was the god, the Canaanite god of good luck, good fortune. Several centuries later, the Greeks, during the days of the Greek Empire, took over the place. And they actually changed the name of the place to Peneus, after the, the, uh, the Greek god Pan of the wild, the god of the wild. So you had this god of where you're find, trying to find good luck, and then this god of the wild and chaos. And then in Christ's time, Philip the Tetrarch, who was the son of Herod the Great and the puppet king of Israel, installed by the Romans, in order to honor both him, uh, himself rather, and the emperor uh, Augustus Caesar, he changed the name of the place to Caesarea Caesar Philippi, Philip, Caesar Philip. And the problem with that is, is that the Romans look to their emperors as what? As gods, as deity. So, so you have this, this place with a very intense history of false worship. And it was in this place, dedicated so often to so many false gods, that Jesus pauses, looks at his disciples, and he says, Hey, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, Jesus was not taking a popularity poll. He wasn't doing opinion polling. He was confronting the disciples about the surrounding culture's assessment of himself in a place that had a lot to say on the subject of whom we give our worship to. He said, hey, what what do these guys say? Everyone in their day had an opinion of who Jesus was. Some thought he was just the resurrected prophet. Some thought he was the recently beheaded John the Baptist come back to life. And can I tell you something? Not much has changed. Everybody has an opinion on Jesus. Most people will not say to you, I hate Jesus. Everyone has an opinion on Jesus. People, it's hard to find people who are not ready to talk about Jesus. The question you have to ask yourself is, which Jesus are they talking about? You cannot assume that the Jesus that they're talking about is the Jesus represented in these scriptures. Can't make that. Let me give you some examples of that. Uh, when when you're trying to assess, is the Jesus that they're talking about the one presented in the Bible or a fictitious Jesus of their own minds? For example, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is a created being, that he once did not exist and now he's been created, but he's not at all equal to the Father. Muslims believe that Jesus is a great prophet, but not even the greatest prophet. Some secularists Believe that Jesus is a good man. They'll, they'll, they'll give you that point. That he's a great teacher. Or that he was a great advocate for welfare programs. But certainly nothing more. To insist that he was a redeemer or savior or God himself. No, that's going way too far. But none of these opinions held by false religions or secularists, none of these opinions, listen to me carefully, matter. It does not matter what one person's opinion of Jesus is. And though the culture would try to tell you that truth is relative, it, if something is, is untrue, it's untrue no matter how sincerely you believe it. None of these opinions matter. Jesus wants us to believe the truth. He said that what will set you free? 
The truth will set you free. And he said, he said whoever the sun sets free is free indeed. And, and why can he make those two statements right in the same chapter of the Bible? Because he says, the tr- you'll know the truth. Truth will set you free. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. Because in John 14, 6, he says, I am the truth. And Jesus wants you to know the truth. He gives us absolutely no permission to ride on the coattails of our family, our country, our church. In other words, he doesn't care if your mom and daddy were deacons in the church. He doesn't care if, you know, you were raised in God fear in America and West Texas. He doesn't care if you've been in church since the day you were born. He wants you to believe the, the truth and the truth as it is found in and defined by him. So he gets a lot more personal and he asks the, the disciples A second question, much more pressing than his first. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, as he so often did, he speaks up for the rest of the group. (laughs) But his answer doesn't come from some book learning. It doesn't come from, from his brash, quickly formulated opinions. Instead, it comes from a deep well of revelation to come springing up from inside and rushing out of his lips. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus then, to Simon Peter and the rest of those gathered, makes a clear statement about his purpose. One that we have emphasized over and over and over. You will not often hear us at Northridge Life Church, me or any of the other leaders, encouraging you to consider making a personal or making Jesus your personal Lord and Savior. Because while we believe that's important, we believe that Jesus calls you to something that is more than just personalized, individualized, isolated. He's calling you into a body, a worldwide body of Christ to be connected with other believers at the very core of your being under the Lordship of Jesus. Amen? And so Jesus makes a statement about his purpose, not merely to save penitent individuals, but to unite them as representatives of his kingdom, the church. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Christ first statement has to do with the initial, now remember what we talked about earlier, his first statement has to do with the initial organic experience that all true members of the body know. The revelation from the Holy Spirit about Jesus that leads us to place our trust in him for our salvation. He says, hey, guess what, Peter? You didn't figure this out on your own. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but it was my Father in heaven. And all of us, by the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, like Peter, confess that Jesus is the promised, long-awaited Messiah, that he's not just a military conqueror, but greater than all of those. He has come from God, and guess what? He is God. And that's what... That first initial organic experience of coming to Christ is that he enlightens us and we make that confession. Jesus points out that this knowledge, as I said earlier, wasn't something Peter figured out, but it was a gift from the Father. And if you have in faith made that confession, you too have made it by a gift from the Father. And can you say, thank God for that gift of revelation that led us to say, You are the Christ. 
You're not just a great teacher, a welfare advocate, somebody like God, a created being. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It wasn't something he could accomplish on his own, but once God revealed it to him, it was no longer something he could resist or deny from now on. For the rest of his days, till the day he was crucified upside down, Peter would be the captive of this revelation that God had given him. But more than that, Jesus tells Peter, get this, that he is going to build the institution of his church. So we have the organic experience of this revelation, this kind of hard to define thing that happened in Peter. And he says that I'm going to build the institution of my church on the same revelation and the same confession from others for the rest of time. See, nobody becomes a part of the church that Christ is building without a revelation from beyond their intellect. And that revelation from beyond their intellect has to lead to a confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. Paul said it incredibly well for us in Romans chapter 10. You guys have read this passage. He's trying to explain how this salvation that he's described now for 10 chapters comes to pass. And he says, but what does it say? Meaning the scriptures. It says the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. The word of faith is right there because verse nine, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, here's some great words, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the first thing that we have to acknowledge about the institution of the church is that the institution of the church is a community of confessors. A community of confessors. They're confessors marked by belief in Christ expressed in repentance from sin and towards God, demonstrated by baptism, evidenced by the pursuit of holiness and submission to one another in mutual discipleship. See, confessed faith is the mark that someone is a part of Christ's church. Let me say that again because this is real critical to where we're going as a church. Confessed faith is the mark, not a mark, but the mark, that someone is a part of Christ's church. Mere attendance won't do it. You can have all the gold stars lined up on all 52 weeks of the year. I'm probably the only one old enough to remember when they gave you stars at at Sunday school for being in attendance. But you can have all 52 gold stars, and that does not make you a member of Christ's church. Listen carefully. Confessed faith is the mark that someone's a part of Christ's church. You can give till you're out of money. You can serve till you're out of time. And those things are great, but they do not make you a member of Christ's church. Confess faith does. You can be a nice person, come to church every week, and still not be a part of Christ's church. Christ's church is built on the bedrock of confessed faith. 
Though that's the most basic definition of the institutional church, did you notice that Christ didn't stop there? He gave us another beautiful organic part of the church. He said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, we don't get excited enough about the scripture that says that. You know why I know? Because if we did, our lives would be lived a whole lot differently. I'm not picking on you. My life would be a whole lot differently if I believed that to the degree that Christ wanted me to hear it with spiritual ears. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. What is he saying there? Jesus promises. Everybody say promises. Jesus promises. Have you ever known Jesus to break a promise? Have you ever known Jesus to lie? The Bible says he can't lie. Jesus promises that those who are aligned by belief, confession, repentance, baptism, and discipleship, in the end, will not be disappointed. It's a promise. Gates of hell pose no threat to the church of Jesus Christ. And can I just suggest to you that if the gates of hell pose no threat, the gates of Washington or Moscow or Pyongyang, do not pose any threat to the kingdom of God. Jesus has guaranteed the success of his church. Think about, as I mentioned all those cities, think about all the kings, all the emperors, all the philosophers. I was, I was thinking about this, and I, I have a little app that gives me today in church history. And today I read that it was 101 years ago today, after the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, that the, the state confiscated all the church property in, in, in Russia and banned all religious teaching in schools today, 101 years ago today. Banned it. Took all the church property. Can I ask you a very direct question? Do you think there's any Christians in Russia today? There's any people that are on fire, loving the Lord, following Him, obeying His commands, living as disciples of Jesus Christ? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Think of all those kings, emperors, philosophers over the last 2,000 years who have either predicted the demise of the church, we're getting too smart, science is advancing too fast, we won't need the church. Or maybe they've even actively tried to destroy it like the Bolsheviks did. How much blood has been spilled from the veins of faithful martyrs while the sound of the gospel still thunders across creation, calling men and women to faith in Jesus. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But even though all this is true, I don't think Jesus was primarily thinking about the defensive posture of the church when he spoke about the guaranteed failure of the gates of hell. He wasn't just saying that the church would survive persecution. Think about it. What are gates designed to do? They're not designed primarily to keep people out. Like if you have a walled city and there's big old gates in the front of it in the ancient world, they weren't designed to keep people in. They were designed to keep people out. So Jesus is inviting us, his church, to go on offense. Let that sink in for just a second. Jesus is calling his church to go on offense. And what he's saying is that when we fearlessly take the message of the cross to the culture, that no power of hell, nor scheme of man as we sing, has any defense or escape. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ has promised victory to his obedient church. For example, if you, if you think the church, you look at the church and you see maybe even this room not full and you think, ah, oh, the church is in decline, it's lethargic, it's dead. Think again. 
Did you know it's estimated that the number of people claiming to be Christians, claiming to be followers of Christ, increased by 420 million plus between 2000 and 2015. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. God has been consistently, daily, adding to his church since the day of Pentecost. And let me in on the, uh, give you a little spoiler alert. He will continue to do so until the final number is gathered in and he comes and, and raises the dead and sets up his kingdom and we live with him forever. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because one reason that the church seems so ineffective be that God's people here in the comfortable global West have forgotten that Jesus has promised the success of this enterprise called the church. Could it be? So we see, I'll move on. So we see that the church is a believing and confessing community armed with a guarantee of tri- a triumphant outcome. But can we, is there, when we see this and we see threats coming against this church, can, can we guard the integrity of this institution? Do we have a role to play in that? Or we just kind of cross our fingers and hope God's going to take care of us? Listen to what Jesus said next. It's really important really and really easy to read over. Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. He said, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. But I believe, as as many Bible scholars, most that you'll find, that the keys of the kingdom refer to the church's responsibility, in Jonathan Lehman's words that we read earlier, to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Many people, especially ones if you were raised Roman Catholic, you might read these words, um, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom, and apply them only to Peter because he's the one that Jesus is addressing. But if we look just a couple of chapters over, from 16 to to chapter 18, we'll find a similar thought expressed, but it's not directed only at Peter, it's directed to the disciples, which at that point represented the entire church. Those guys represented everybody in the church at that point. And Jesus says this, we read it a few weeks ago, but I'll read it again. Matthew eighteen seventeen. If he, meaning an unrepentant brother, refuses to listen to them, those who are pleading for him to re- repent, Jesus says, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Listen, truly I say to you, disciples, not Peter, to disciples... Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The inclusion of the disciples in the binding and loosing of the church's discipleship and discipline, meaning that it was not just a special privilege set aside for Peter or for the apostles, means because we're all disciples, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a disciple. Am I correct? It means that our connectedness and dependence on one another and accountability to one another as a part of this body runs very, very deep, maybe more deeply than we've ever considered. When we enter into a covenant to be in partnership with one another in the body of Christ, we become responsible to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and in his kingdom. You look after me and I look after you. We can no longer live detached, isolated lives, adamantly insisting that our lives are nobody's business but our own. 
We'll talk more about that next week and the next couple of weeks. I think the best description of how these many parts fit together was the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, as it is, there are many parts. Look around the room. Look at all these parts, all these body parts. So there's many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the, the parts of the body, listen, that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor that our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. What Paul is saying is you have no right in this building. If you are a confessing, a faith-confessing member of Jesus' body, you have no right to say, well, I'm not a preacher, I'm not an elder, I'm not a deacon, I'm not this, I'm not that, so I don't matter as much. False! God is saying that every one of you, the strong, the weak, the, the, the parts of the body we don't see as much, the ones that are more obvious, every one of them plays a vital key in the body. But God has so composed the body, back to verse, the last half of verse 24, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all of us suffer together. Yesterday, Casey came over, Casey Bradshaw came over, and, and um, uh, he was helping me with a project that I was completely incapable to do to put, put a gate up on my fence. And, and um, he brought his dad with him, and his dad is swinging a hammer, and inevitably it happened. That hammer came down on that thumb, and, you know, he didn't say, I'm going to ignore the pain searing through my thumb with my brain. This, this pain in this thumb doesn't affect this hand at all. Oh, no. Oh, no. Every part of his body felt what his thumb was experiencing. Every part of it. And that's what Paul is describing. If one member suffers, verse 26, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. If you ever tell your wife, man, your eyes are pretty. You think she's not feeling it right here? It's not just her eyes saying, oh, that was really sweet of you. No. She feels it from her head to her toe. And you guys ought to tell your wife that they have pretty eyes more often. Verse 27. Now listen, this is the summation. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. When I look at this group, I'm seeing the body. And I'm talking of thumbs and ears and noses and toes and belly buttons and whatever else is out there. I don't know how you define yourself as the belly button of the body of Christ, but I'm sure someone here is that. And you're important. What an amazing way. What an amazing way that Christ is represented in the body as a part of, in this body, part of the body rather that's called Northridge Life Church. What an amazing way Christ is represented. We are all different. Every one of us, I mean, look around. We're all different. We have different gifts, different talents, different personalities, different strengths, different weaknesses. But there's no hierarchy of important people in this room. Every one of you are vital to the body. And I'm speaking honestly, I'm speaking candidly when I say the great joy of my life is being part of the body of Christ with you. My life would be so empty without you. I'm completely aware of how much I need you. I'm I'm totally aware of it. Many of you have guarded, encouraged, challenged, even corrected me. You've helped me, Casey. You laughed with me. You cried with me. 
I hope you can look around this room and feel the same way about the ones that are gathered here. I hope you can say, man, what would my life be without this brother? Where would I have been without this sister? I hope you can be increasingly grateful for the family that God's given you here. But if you can't feel that way right now, I hope that you'll accept our invitation to come in from the periphery, to come in from the edges of this fellowship and get connected with some people who would love to share life with you. But the thing we have to remember is that being a member or a covenant partner of this or any other church isn't about signing your name on a line. We're not trying to increase some role. It's, it's not about voluntarily connecting with a few folks who are just like you. Okay, I guess I'll join. It's about recognizing that God has sovereignly, by His choice, placed you in a family, into a tribe. And now you don't have to live because of that. You don't have to live isolated. You don't have to live alone because we are united together. And we're not united by race. We're not united by culture. We're not united by economics. We're not united by our favorite hobbies. We are united by Christ in Christ. He put us together, and he put us together in himself. What an awesome deal. Paul, addressing the Gentile church at Ephesus, pointed out that, to, pointed out to him that though they were so different from their Jewish predecessors, the Jews were the first ones to believe in Jesus. Now these Gentiles have come in. And, and Paul points out to them that God has done this amazing work of uniting them by the death and resurrection of Christ. If you saw a first century Jew and a first century Gentile with all of their, their cultural traditions and things, you would say there's nothing similar about them. But listen to what Paul says. He says, therefore, remember... That at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, in other words, the Jews, which is made by the flesh and the hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. The Jews thought, man, okay, we've got Jesus. Jesus is just the next step in Judaism. This is going to be awesome. And he says, remember, you were at one time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and you were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, guess what? You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Jesus himself, is our peace. And he has made both one and he's broken down in his flesh on the cross, the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances of the law, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's no more me and you, there's no more us and them. It is we, the one body of Jesus Christ. He made the both one. We're now joined, not because of us, but because of him. This is a big part of what we remember as we approach the table to take the Lord's Supper each week. We don't eat from different loaves. We don't drink from different cups. No, we've come together to remember and to feast on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. We don't have a white Jesus and a black Jesus, a Republican Jesus, a Democrat Jesus, a rich Jesus, and a poor Jesus. Just Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And if that's what's uniting us, What on earth could possibly be important enough to divide us? What on earth? If I've been united to you in Christ Jesus, what is it in you that I could look at and say, I can't walk with you? 
Because the same blood that covered your sins and made you a new person has covered mine and made me a new person. I have no reason to divide from you, but I have every reason to walk in unity, in family, in connection, in covenant with you. Let's all stand. If I could have my communion workers come assist me, please. The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was crucified, or the night when he was betrayed, rather, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. The one body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's give thanks. Father, we thank you that you have made us one body, that we have been united by you and in you. And Lord, as we examine ourselves before coming to the table of the Lord, we, we ask you, Lord, to grant us forgiveness for the many areas of our temporal lives where we say, well, I can't walk in fellowship with that person because they're politics are different than mine or their race is different than mine or their age is different than mine or their uh, minor beliefs in some certain area of theology is different than mine. Lord, we repent of that. And Lord, we, we confess together that the things that unite us, Lord, are so much greater than the things that could ever divide us. That we are one body and that you have destroyed any, any hostility that could have justifiably existed between us by your death, by your resurrection, by your ascension. We have one king and his name is Jesus. We thank you for that, Lord. God, help us to come together rejoicing with our fellow, the fellow members of our body today. And let us feast on your goodness. Let us, our, our, as we feast, let us remember you this morning and place all of our confidence in you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.